0: welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics joins us to discuss the science of polling and how to determine if a poll is legitimate, especially as we head into midterms. We'll also delve into the future of legacy media. What does it mean when some network ratings bottom out at the same time podcast listenership like ours is increasing? We're going to break that all down. Tom Bevan is the co-founder and executive editor of Real Clear Politics. for the last 11 years under Tom's editorial leadership Real Clear Politics has grown into one of the most widely read and well-respected independent political sites on the internet in addition, in addition to overseeing the editorial staff and Writing regular features. Tom's work has appeared in numerous publications and he is featured frequently as a commentator on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and the BBC. He is also the co author with Carl Cannon of two ebooks on the 2012 election. The battle begins and a time for choosing. Tom, thank you so much for joining She Thinks today.
1: It's great to be with you, Beverly.
0: Uh, I first actually just want to ask you about Real Clear Politics. You started this outlet 11 years ago. It has grown so much. What has the ride been like for you, especially as we see the ever-evolving state of media?
1: Well, actually, we we started in 2000. So this is, believe it or not, our 22nd year. Oh, wow. Uh, And, uh, you know, it was one of those things. When we started uh, Real Clear Politics, it was before I mean, before iPhones, before YouTube, before the blogosphere, if it, nobody even remembers what that was. Um, but the real aha moment for us was <clears throat> that in the mid '90s, uh, my partner and I, John McIntyre, we were political junkies, but we weren't involved in politics or journalism professionally. He was a trader; I was in advertising. But we recognized that it was the it was the we followed politics pretty closely, particularly elections. And and in the mid '90s was the first time. When you could wake up and read what was being written in the LA Times and the New York Times on the same day, that was sort of the the moment where we thought to ourselves, "Hey, let's start a site for people like us who are passionate about politics, policy, and elections, and bring all of this information uh, into you know one place." And shortly thereafter, we started the Real Clear Politics poll averages, which is how people really came to know us and how we sort of broke onto the scene. Um, but we've essentially been doing the same thing for over two decades, which is aggregating the best uh, in political news, opinion, commentary, analysis, video clips, and obviously uh, polling data and information, so so that people can have a a real sense of of you know what's going on in the world on a daily basis. Um, and the great thing about RCP, I always tell people, it's it's, you know, it's kind of like a cheat sheet. You can just scan the page and see the numbers and the clips and the, and the stories and you can spend five minutes, if that's all you have, or you can spend five hours, you know, digging into the cross tabs of polls, reading all of the articles, watching the video clips. So it really serves a, a sort of dual purpose, a clearinghouse uh, of political news and information.
0: And what do you think is the magic of a poll? Meaning, so often when there is a new poll out, the whole news cycle changes because everybody's talking about the latest poll. When we talk about elections, of course, we're heading into midterms. People want to know what the polls are saying. Where are we? What is about? What is it about polling that creates so much interest for people?
1: Well, because it's it's one of the only metrics we have to understand where uh, you know a race is at any given point in time, and that's why. You know, and, and people, I think, rightly um, <clears throat> complain that the horse race aspect of of campaigns gets too much coverage, who's up, who's down, as opposed to more policy related concerns. But, you know, people are interested. I mean, it is, the, it is the scoreboard by which we measure how campaigns are doing. But you're right. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we started the poll averages um, back in the early uh, 2000s is because you know, you'd have a poll come out that said, you know, uh, you know, one person, let's say the Democrat was up two points, and then and the next day or two days later, you'd have a poll come out that said the Republican was up two points. Well, who's right? Well, the idea was if you aggregate that polling data together, that the truth is really somewhere in between. And so, taking polls that are in the field in a contemporaneous period of time, um, and remember, these polls, even today, it's still you know as much art as it is science, right? pollsters make phone calls and then they have to make educated guesses about the electorate and who's going to turn out on election day. Um, and that's become trickier and trickier as people have moved from landlines to cell phones. It became even trickier in the age of Donald Trump where people were not telling pollsters what they really believed or weren't answering phone calls um, because they don't trust the media they don't trust pollsters so um, but but overall the idea was at least in terms of the real clear politics average, <laughs> That that if you took all of the data and put it together um, and averaged it out, that you would have a a more accurate representation of where a race stood at any given point in time, and also allowed you to look at the trends over time. Um, and the the you know polling averages have been you know spectacularly accurate over the last uh, number of election cycles, and has become one of the best ways to keep track of. Um, and again, we'll still get polls every now and then that people will come out and make a big splash. And we always tell people, look, don't put, any, don't put too much stock in any single poll. Always look at the average um, because that'll give you a, a more measured sense, more holistic sense of, of where a race stands at any given point in time.
0: And I think it's so important. Like you said, it's the aggregate. You're averaging out polls. When you look at polls that you even want to add into your data source, are you looking at the sampling size, the type of questions they're asking? How do you even determine which polls you want to add into your averages?
1: So we have a a criteria for using. We don't use any polls that are uh, sponsored by by PACs uh, or campaign polls. We do use polls that are conducted by Republican uh, polling organizations or Democratic polling organizations, so long as they're not conducted on behalf of an individual campaign. Um, And so, um, but we we try to make sure that we know exactly what the pollster that they have a track record um, that they're not. Uh, Just a fly by night operation that that popped up. When we've seen this in the past, that's you know every cycle there are one or two new pollsters that nobody's ever heard of that are polling in swing states, Um, and in at some point uh, trying to perhaps manipulate public opinion, manipulate even our averages by producing results. And so we have to be you know pretty pretty uh, vigilant about knowing exactly uh, who's polling, what they're doing, and that they're a reputable organization. Um, But beyond that. Uh, if it's a if it's a public poll um, taken, uh, we'll most likely include it in our average.
0: And you mentioned that we can, with with the type of polling that you're doing and the way you aggregate it, can trust polling to be within a certain margin of error and that they're pretty trustworthy. But yet when we look at, let's say, the 2016 election, some say that pollsters famously got the presidential outcomes very wrong when it came to Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. Now, I think you touched on that a little bit, which is that people were afraid to talk to pollsters if they were supportive of Donald Trump. Is that the main reason why there was such a surprise on Election Day?
1: No, unfortunately not. <laughs> there, well, there are a couple things uh, about, and, and we have had, prior to 2016, we had had a couple of instances where there had been complete polling misses. Um, Barack Obama in 2008 in New Hampshire, for example, after he won the Iowa caucuses, he went to, into New Hampshire. Um, everyone thought that he was, all the polls had him winning that state by, you know, six, seven, eight points. And if you remember, there was, you know, Hillary Clinton was at a press conference. She got emotional. There was a guy at a rally who had a shirt, a, a sign that said, you know, iron my shirt or something. And uh, she ended up winning that state by a couple of points. And it was a complete shock because not a single pollster predicted her winning. Part of the explanation for that uh, is that there were no polls in the field in the last 48 hours of that race to, to capture that late swing and momentum. And that's something that we've seen that happen a couple of times um, another race was uh, Harry Reid in, in Nevada in 2010. Everyone had Sharon Angle winning that race by a slight margin. He ended up winning it by by you know five or six points. So it has happened before. I think what was unique about 2016 um, is that the national polls were actually very accurate, more accurate than they had been in previous cycles. They had our national average had Hillary Clinton winning by I think three points. She won it by two point one something like that. Um, but it was the some of these individual states where the uh, individual pollsters, but also even our averages did not predict the correct outcome. Now, part of that is is not so much the polls, and I'll give you a couple examples. The day before the election, we have a we have a map, Real Clear politics electoral map, which takes all of our um, our polling averages, right in the various swing states. and we have a map that shows whether they're, you know in the red column in the blue column or they're or they're considered considered. Uh, you know, toss-up races. But we also had a part of that map where you, you click on a button, it's called the no toss-up map, and it allocates states based on where our poll averages stand at that. So even if if Hillary Clinton was winning a state by 0.1% in our in our average, that would be allocated to her. Same thing for Donald Trump. On the day before the 2016 election, um, we had Hillary Clinton winning, but it was like 272 to 266. We had Trump winning Florida, North Carolina, um, Nevada, which he didn't win. Um, we, but we also had in Pennsylvania, for example, our final, uh, the last poll we put into the Pennsylvania average had Donald Trump leading by one percentage point. Our final average in Pennsylvania was under two points. It was 1.5 or six. Um, the same thing was true in Michigan, for example. And so I think one of the problems with, with 2016 wasn't so much that the polls, there were, there were some polling errors, particularly in Wisconsin, but if you looked at it, um, it wasn't so much the the polls as it was the pundits. I mean, every single person, all these reputable people from Sam Wang at Princeton University to David Plouffe, uh, former Obama campaign manager, were on TV in the two weeks leading up to the election saying this is a 100% lock for Hillary Clinton. There's no way she's going to lose this race. Um, I'll bet my life on it, uh, you know, all of that stuff. Everywhere you looked, uh, it was the consensus. It was the conventional wisdom that Hillary Clinton was going to win that race. But if you actually looked at the data, the race was a lot closer than that. And and if you looked at other metrics like the, the Republican the generic congressional ballot, right, you saw Republicans surge in the final two weeks of the 2016 race, which should have given people an indication that something was going on. We also had all sorts of anecdotal data, uh, anecdotal stories about you know Trump rallies and Trump voters here and there. And what happened was the media and the pundits sort of filtered out all of the data points that didn't agree with their preconceived narrative that Hillary Clinton was absolutely going to win this race. And so there were some issues with polling. And one of the biggest ones um, was that was that the education gap, right? The electorate really sort of spun on its head. And for the first time, we saw uh, voters with high school degrees or less swing who were primarily rural, but also some suburban swing dramatically away from Democrats and into Donald Trump's corner. And we had folks who had, you know, college educated or, or beyond PhDs and the like moved from Republicans to Democrats. But that was one of the things because pollsters were still modeling off of the traditional electorate and they did not capture. That was just one example of, of something that they missed um, and surprised a lot of pollsters on, on election day the turn out particularly among, uh, that, that educated, education demographic.
0: And I think it's such an interesting time for polling for politics because, as you were just saying, the standards that we're used to aren't necessarily where people are today. There's the era of Donald Trump and how that kind of threw everything up in the air, Uh, more moderate working class Democrats moving to voting for him, which wasn't traditional of them voting for a Republican president. But even now we have the whole era of COVID and how we have inflation that's gone up people not working we have so many things that aren't the norm do you find that it's a really exciting time for those who work in polling because it is hard to predict because so many things have changed in such a short amount of time
1: well I, you know i have long been a defender of pollsters that they've they've you know done their best to adapt to changing circumstances i mentioned uh you know people moving from landlines to cell lines uh, trying to incorporate, you know, uh, online polls, which is obviously where where things are headed. However, um, I, I do think that after 2016, when pollsters took a look at you know what went wrong and what they could do better, um, they didn't really do a very good job in 2020, <laughs> um, and some of the same mistakes were made. Now, I you know, and a lot of people say, well, you know, the pollsters got it wrong again in 2020. That's not actually true. I mean, if you want to be specific and precise, there were a, a group of pollsters that got it wrong. And they were typically the academic based mm-hmm. uh, pollsters from places like Quinnipiac University and uh, others and all of the the so-called uh, you know blue chip media polls. There were a group of pollsters, however, like Trafalgar, who's a Republican pollster who was one of the only pollsters uh, to get it right in 2016. Uh, other polling groups like Insider Advantage in Susquehanna that actually did very, very well in terms of their polling for, for 2020. So um, I think we're at a, a, a period of time, a moment in time where you've got some folks who who did understand the electorate during the Donald Trump era and do a pretty good job of modeling turnout and and coming up with accurate results where you had another group of pollsters that could not figure it out. And so the question moving forward, particularly right now um, in this first midterm where Donald Trump is not on the ballot, but he's clearly a factor. He's out there. He's he's endorsing candidates and the like. Um, it'll be interesting to see how pollsters do this midterm and then obviously in 2024, either with him on the ballot or without him on the ballot.
0: So let's talk about where the polls are showing things today. I want to start first start with President Joe Biden. He's had Polling that shows he's a very low approval rating in the low 40s, even when you take the, the averages not doing well. This is not good for in your first year as president. What do you make of the polling that we're seeing so far? What does it say?
1: Well, he's had a rough first year, obviously. And I think that, you know, you saw Biden enjoy sort of a honeymoon period in the first few months uh, of of his administration and even issues that were clearly not helpful to his administration, like the immigration situation at the border, uh, which had, you know, reached sort of crisis levels, wasn't really impacting him. Um, We started to see, and obviously, you know, COVID was sort of moving in the right direction. But during the summer, um, even after Biden had sort of declared victory against the pandemic in in July, um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan... In August, you can see it just sort of was like a was a tipping point where not only was that issue uh, a problem for him and people didn't think he handled that well, but it really sort of eroded his his brand across the board in terms of people thinking that he was competent to do his job, um, that he was honest, that he was trustworthy, that he cared about people like like me, uh, all of those questions, which had been, uh, you know, Part of his his core brand and his strength during the campaign just got washed away by Afghanistan, and he's never really recovered. We've seen the supply chain issues, we've seen inflation, um, and so you know the question for the Biden administration as they try and regain their footing and they're resetting and they're trying to figure things out: Can they? Can he recover um, to the point where he can he can gain some of that trust back? As as you mentioned, right now he's at he's at forty one point three. Uh, in our Real Clear Politics average today, actually yesterday, I think, uh, but today also, the first time that that his uh, job approval rating has fallen below where President Trump was at this point in time. So four years ago on today, um, you know, Donald Trump's approval rating was higher uh, than than Joe Biden's was at this point in time. So um, they've got a lot of work to do. If he were to stay at that number moving into the midterms, it would be really, really uh, not good for the Democrats. They would suffer greatly, I think, both in the House and in the Senate.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that they have have struggled so much. Of course, there are certain things that are out of his hands. You mentioned Afghanistan. But even one of the areas I think of is some of the the focal points that he has had, whether that's voting rights that he wants to focus on, them struggling to define what inflation is. Is it, does it exist? Is it transitory? Is it a problem? Is it here to stay? They're struggling with their narrative on so much of this. And is this because he is trying to toe that line of keeping the progressive base happy and maybe not listening to the pollsters enough and what people really want him to do as president?
1: Well, I definitely think there's a situation where the, the priorities of the administration are mismatched and, and they'll deny that, of course. But I mean, Look, every single poll, um, in overwhelming numbers, the the number one issue on the minds of voters is, is inflation and the economy, right? Yeah, and and the the Biden administration will say a couple things um, that you know they're they're the president mentions inflation, he empathizes, they're working on it, they're using you know what what tools they have in their toolkit. The problem is is that. You know, in politics, perception is reality, and the perception, at least among voters, is that the administration is not treating that issue with the urgency that that they are treating it with. Right? Instead, he's off talking about voting rights. He's talking about January sixth. He's talking about um, these other issues that uh, you know, again, for the American people, um, are not as big of a concern. And so, I think, and and this has been a pattern. I mean, when this when when inflation first came up. You know, first the, the administration they dismissed it. It's not happening. Then it was, well, it's transitory. It's not going to last. It'll be fine. Um, and you know, they just the messaging on this has been bad from the start. Instead of getting ahead of it and and really saying, hey, this is a problem. We're going to work on this. Um, we're going to you know appoint a task force or uh, you know, inflation czar or somebody so that the so that giving a signal to the public that they were taking it seriously, that it was their top issue as well. Um, it just it didn't happen. And as a result, um, they're suffering politically now, and they're they're sort of behind the eight ball and trying to dig themselves out. The other thing, too, and this is this is true of any administration, right? They want to trumpet the good news. And there is good news in the economy. So they're talking about more jobs created last year than any time in American history, and the unemployment rate is so low, and so they're but wage growth,
0: wages going up, but
1: unfortunately. That is coming off, again, as almost like an alternate reality for people, because people don't feel like the economy is great. Uh, They don't feel like it's getting better. And so when the administration goes out there and touts these numbers, which which is obviously, you know, (laughs) their right and what they want to do to present the best case they can, you know, the public is looking at them and thinking, you know, you don't get it. And that's that's politically it's a problem.
0: I think it is, too. I think anytime that you go to the score- store and there are shelves empty, anytime you go to the pump and your gas costs over $3 a, a gallon, if not more, depending on what you state you're in, those are the real world world. Uh, Consequences of of policies that lead to this. And I do think there's been that tone deaf aspect to this administration, even in reference to crime. I'm wondering if they're gonna come around on the crime issue because Americans do care about that. Um, But I wanna turn our attention a little bit to something that you were talking about earlier and just media, you mentioned earlier about uh, the 2016 election in relation to pundits. And there was this silo mentality among pundits that Hillary Clinton for sure was gonna win the 2016 election. And, of course, she didn't. I want to talk about legacy media and where it is today. You often are commenting on the various cable networks. CNN has had a lot of upheaval and turmoil, specifically this month. You had Jeff Zucker, who had to step down um, because he was not forthcoming about a relationship that he had. CNN has really struggled. Where is legacy media? Do you think that the majority of the American people do trust cable outlets? W- where is that from a polling standpoint on where the American people are?
1: Uh No, they don't. And <laughs> I mean, and this is we just had a poll come out from, I think, IBD Tip uh, earlier this week saying, look, the the collapse in, in trust in the media uh, just continues uh, unabated. I mean, it's just it's been going on uh, for a while now. And and um, I think part of the problem with the media and why the media has suffered is because. Uh, well, it's it, it was I think a lot of people um, understood that there was a sort of a liberal bias in the media. Right. And that, you know, it's just the way stories were framed. And, and that was and that was that. And that was the case for a long, long time. Um, but the contrast between how the media treated President Obama for eight years with this sort of glowing coverage and, you know, he, he would walk out and say he was scandal-free. And when he was asked about scandals, he said, I just read about it in the paper like you guys. I mean, it was very sort of passive. Um, and then along comes Trump. And literally, you know, from the day he took office, the media declared war on him, essentially became part of the quote-unquote resistance. Um, and I think that the contrast of the behavior between those two presidents really set off something in the American people to say, wait a minute, I mean, this is, this has gone, this has gone beyond just sort of your garden variety liberal bias into activism. Um, and, and obviously MSNBC, who portrayed themselves as a, as a, you know, left wing network, that wasn't as much of a shock uh, as it was to, you know, folks who were viewing CNN and seeing them as more of a middle of the road, you know, neutral arbiter, and suddenly you've got, you know, Jim Acosta, Uh, preening at White House press briefings and writing books about, you know, the daily struggle that he's under. I mean, it was just absurd. And uh, and so for that reason, um, you saw trust in the media just absolutely collapse and it hasn't recovered. I don't think it's going to recover, unfortunately. Um, And and it is now I mean, trust in a a variety of institutions has collapsed across the board, whether you're talking about the government or the Supreme court, or, I mean, you name it, education systems, uh, religion. I mean, this is something Gallup's been tracking for decades. Uh, I think it has accelerated during the last few years with the advent of cable news in the nineties, social media in the last, you know, 10 or so years. Um, but the, the legacy media, um, because there, 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 there has never been any sort of accountability or reform, uh, no sort of introspection. Uh, not only when they get something wrong, like the 2016 election, but but also um, again this idea that uh, you know they've been sort of pushing a certain agenda, and uh, and even when they they are shown to be. Just absolutely wrong. Take the case of, you know, the Covington Catholic kids or Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, you could go down the list of all the stories where the media absolutely jumped to conclusions, um, went with stories that were flat out falsehoods, and there were no repercussions for that. They yeah. just move on as if nothing happens. And I think I think there were plenty of folks out, out there who may have been casual news consumers and not really noticed this prior, but, but suddenly were like, you know, this just doesn't seem... This doesn't seem right. If I were to do that in my day to day life or my business, I'd be fired. I'd be reprimanded. I'd be suspended. Something would happen to me. Um, But nothing happens to to these people. and, And it just continues on and on.
0: And and something I've wondered about as far as the polling goes, we've seen the situation with Joe Rogan and there have been a lot of issues about him interviewing different people with different perspectives and whether or not he should be censored because of that. So whether it's IWF or other groups that value the free market and free expression, free speech we care about interviewing people with lots of different perspectives. Where is the American public on this? Is this an age thing where it's people who are generation X to boomers who are for thorough, engaging discussion and debate? And it's the younger generations that think if you dis- disagree with something that it should be censored. Where are we on that? That's an area that does concern me.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And I was just having a conversation with someone the other day and said that, you know, that's actually the most disturbing part of this, uh, even more than than sort of the activist uh, media which took place under Donald Trump. The idea that big tech and other media organizations are flat out censoring arguments, disappearing stories, um, you know, omitting, not covering. That's a real problem. That's something that um, I think is a, is a real threat to to our First Amendment Uh, you know, rights and, and um, journalism and media, um, you know, in general. And I think,
0: go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, you know, I think one of the things that that Joe Rogan had uh, said in his video that he released, uh, you know, the other day, which, which is the crux of the issue, at least for me, which is, he said, you know, when people decry misinformation, first of all, who who gets to decry- who who gets to declare what is misinformation and what's not because he said it's so true you know things that were declared misinformation and where you would get banned for saying 6 months ago are now completely acceptable and in some you know in a lot of cases seen as as likely for example uh he mentioned you know the idea that you you'd be vaccinated that you could catch and pass the the virus or that the you know the lab leak theory which again was verboten for a long time, and if you mentioned it, you were you were, you were thought of as a crank, and media went out of their way to to you know absolutely marginalize anybody who thought that that was a thing. Uh, the way that you know alternate treatments like hydroxychloroquine and and others, ivermectin were were treated by the media um, to cloth mask. I mean, on and on and on. So so. Who gets to declare what's misinformation and something that's that people say is misinformation today could be accepted opinion or at least with at least within the reasonable, uh, you know, spectrum of discourse a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. And so uh, that to me is is the crux of the issue. Um, and and to see people that are pushing so hard. I'm not sure it's a generational thing, to be honest with you. Um, I think there are plenty of you know, younger Americans, I mean, across the, across the, the age spectrum um, that believe in, in free speech. um, And obviously there, there are plenty of them who believe, you know, in cancel culture and, and censorship and think that misinformation is a problem, but, but I'm not sure it's so much a a generational issue as it is more of an ideological issue. Um, And part of this, again, not to, be like a, you know, uh, <laughs> beat a dead horse. Uh, a lot of these things, um, at least in the initial stages, come back to Trump because if Trump said it, then the media was immediately against it. He mentioned the lab leak theory had to be discredited. He mentioned hydroxychloroquine had to be discredited. Um, in a different time and place uh, under a different president, perhaps we wouldn't have seen the same reaction. And so, but here we are, uh, you know, with with President Biden after a year in office and, and there is this still this push to to censor, um, particularly as it relates to to COVID and vaccines and vaccine mandates. Um, so it is it's it's a real problem.
0: So final question I have for you. So I have some of the same concerns about legacy media. I've worked in media for 20 years. I've valued the institution, but like you have been concerned about the way things are covered or not covered or how issues are, they want to silence people. But I think that the silver lining in all of this is to see the rise of something like a podcast where you do have so many people listening to them, where I, I even think it's hilarious that people try to shut down Joe Rogan thinking that they have more sway than he does or that a musician thinks that Spotify is going to take down Joe Rogan because their own songs that are on Spotify. So do you think that these other ways to have conversations, to get information, the more new media aspect is actually something to be, that is encouraging, even as you see it?
1: Yeah, I I do. And by the way, I mean, people who think that if Spotify dropped Joe Rogan that he would just simply go away or just, you know, living in a dream world, he would just set up his own media company and produce his podcast and still get 11 million, probably get 20 million people to listen at that point. And that, so, so it has been interesting being part of the, watching the media landscape change over the last two decades, right? Because on one hand it has been, um, there have been pluses and minuses, right? One of the pluses is suddenly, you know, you've had this fragmentation, disintegration whatever you want to call it from from of these legacy media outlets and and now there are so many different outlets there are so many different um, you know platforms where you can go and get information that you couldn't or wouldn't get before right so that's great um, the problem one of the one of the downsides to that though is that people are uh, as we've gotten more tribal as we've as we've sort of uh, especially with the advent of social media, we've sort of reinforced our own information bubbles. And so we may be getting our information from different places and that's good, but we're only getting it from those places. And suddenly, which is why we often feel like, uh, you know, the blue team and the red team are operating in the two completely separate universes, right? Look at the same set of facts, come to completely different conclusions about what just happened and what it means moving forward. Um, it's, it's actually, Pretty astonishing and in that sense I think frightening that that uh we can't even agree on what the facts are uh anymore. So but I but I do think it is it's it's been a tough time for journalists. A lot of newsrooms have shut down um and and you know laid people off and, and all that. But at the same time, it's been in some ways it's exciting if you want to get into journalism. I mean, there are the barriers to entry now are so low. You can start a substack, you can start, you know you can start writing on medium. You can, you know, and if, and if you're good and you're writing interesting things um, then you'll get noticed and maybe you will get picked up by uh, a bigger outlet or maybe you'll get enough subscribers to make it your full-time living. So, you know, there are uh, upsides and downsides to uh, to what's gone on the way that media landscape has changed. The other thing too, is I think, and the last thing I'll say is, you know we live in the most uh complex media environment in the history of humankind right and and as it's gotten more complex it's become harder for consumers to figure out what the heck is going on and i think as a result of that it's become incumbent upon more incumbent upon the consumer right to do be vigilant and do the work to to find information right not just read one publication you've got to read you know, something that comes from the left and something that comes from the right. You've got to search out. Uh, you can't just rely on, you know, your friends sending you stuff from Facebook. I mean, so it's a it's it's a complex media environment. It's only going to get more complex as we have, you know, we talk about misinformation, disinformation, deep fakes and the like. Um, so there are some dangers out there. But um, again, if you're a news consumer, um, it's up to you to, to make sure that you're you're seeing the full spectrum and getting as much information as you can and, and making decisions um, based on, on what, you know, the information that you're, you're gathering.
0: Well, the question I often get from people is where can I go to just get straight news? And I do point people to real clear politics. Yes, you have the commentary side, but you have the straight news side as well. People can get information there. I think in the roughly two decades that you've been in operation, not 11 years, like I mistakenly said earlier, you guys have really weathered the media, the change in the media landscape really, really well. I appreciate your polling information too. So thank you so much for your work and also for joining us on She Thinks today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks.
0: And thank you for joining us. We hope you take away something new from today's conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, join other like-minded women and men for more great conversations on our members-only platform called Independent Women's Network. Members enjoy exclusive content, resources, messaging workshops, and more. And if you enter code SHETHINKS at checkout, that's code SHETHINKS at checkout, you get 20% off your membership. So from all of us here at IWF, thanks for watching, and we'll see you on the network.